I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, March 19th, 2012. Oh boy. Yes, yes, yes. No, maybe... Last second changes here. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy and awful things being said out there, all in the name of God in Christian churches, the last place any of this stuff should be taking place is the place where it's actually taking place. Does that make sense? Yeah, that sounds kind of circular. I'm thinking through the mental image that just came to mind. Anyway, so what this program does is that we, we go out there, we scour the Internet, we look at the movers and shakers, the popular preachers, the popular teachers, the people who put themselves out as pastors to pastors, a.k.a. self-appointed bishops, if you would, and and just compare to see if what they're saying really squares with Scripture or if these people are successful by cutting corners, successful by scratching itching ears, successful as a result of not teaching the biblical message, which is a tough one to preach. Reason being is, is that sinful humanity being what it is, sinful, corrupted, fallen into sin, uh, is is not, well, a friend of the gospel, the gospel message that there's nothing you could do to save yourself. You are in dire need of a savior, and that savior is calling you to repent of your evil and your wickedness and your sin and believe and trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. Nothing you can add to it. No, you can't earn any of it. It's all given away as a gift. And the cross itself, the preaching of the cross is scandalous. It really, really has a way of <clears throat> rankling people, if you would, uh, causing ire, weeping and gnashing in teeth this side of uh, of hell. It, it's it's true. So, uh, you know, a lot of guys out there have discovered that if they just cut back, 
you know, maybe snip off this offending corner here and maybe shave off that edge over here and and maybe throw in a little bit of, uh, you know, God is there as your personal genie who who really wants to unlock your potential. Just, you know, kind of substitute that, that they can grow big churches and they can become very successful and stuff like that. The problem is, is they're sending people to hell. Now, here's the deal is uh, as we get into today's program, uh, especially when we get into the sermon review time, it's going to be important for us to keep in mind that many false gospels can be identified. There's many, many gospels being presented out there in Christian churches, and they're not the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel can be summarized in the words found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in the opening verses where Paul says that he passed on that which was of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. And so the idea being is, is that the, the, the summary of the gospel is, is really Christ and him crucified for our sins. And uh, that's the biblical gospel. If you're hearing something different than that, then you're not hearing the biblical gospel. And what we learn from the opening uh, verses from the book of Galatians is, is that if somebody is coming to you and preaching a gospel other than that one, um, that uh, that they are under a curse and uh, they they are not teaching a, a biblical gospel. False gospels damn people. And so we always have to remember when we look through church history, we look through church history and we look at the different heresies that the church has battled from the beginning that uh the the very first uh you know her heretical uh movement that we saw was a movement that altered the gospel and and preached a different kind of good news a kind of good news that was based on works righteousness a mixing of law and gospel that was the very first heresy that the church faced that's and so that's recorded for us uh, in Acts chapter 15, the very first church council that convened to address uh, an internal heresy, uh, when we read the Paul's epistle to the Galatian churches, that heresy is being addressed straight up and put down. But Paul, again, he writes, in fact, let me pull this up in my uh, computerized Bible. I, I'll be using Accordance ac today. I, although I got to tell you, I'm back and forth now between uh, Lagos and, uh, and Accordance. It's kind of it's it's almost becoming a tie as far, as far as how much time I'm in each edition. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel that is contrary to the one that we preached, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel that is contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The Greek word for accursed is anathema, means eternally damned. And so uh, the idea is this, is that so much of the problems that we're hearing in the church today are basically a whole bunch of competing Gospels, good newses, if you would. The problem is, is that the false gospels aren't offering the real biblical good news that Christ died for our sins and was resurrected on the third day uh, for our justification. Instead, they have a corrupt gospel that is also addressing a corrupt problem. It, think of it this way. 
is that uh, when you go to the doctor and say you're having an ache or a pain or maybe you've cut yourself or you know maybe something isn't you're not feeling right or whatever so the idea is is that the 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 job of the doctor is to assess the problem and then give you the appropriate remedy based upon the the problem that is manifesting okay if you don't properly diagnose the problem then you're not going to give the correct remedy plain and simple. I mean, nobody gives cold medicine for cancer. It just doesn't happen that way. And in fact, if you have a doctor who says, yeah, yeah, take some DayQuil and call me in the morning when you when you you have lung cancer, not not uh, you understand what I'm saying? That that's like grounds for a lawsuit. But we've got a lot of practitioners in the visible church today who are doing just that. They are basically offering a, a good news that counters a, a, a false understanding of what the problem is. You can think of it this way, is that they have a corrupt anthropology. When we, you know, anthropology being study of man, okay? Biblically, it, the, the God's word reveals a proper way of understanding man's problem, okay? Why is the world as screwed up as it is? Why is it that uh, the things I want to do, I don't do? My, why, why is my life completely marked with, well, failures, sins, problems, issues. I mean, it, it, when I look across my life, it, you have to, you know, I don't know what your experience is. I mean, I'm just not going to assume to know what your experience is. But if it's anything like mine, then life isn't easy. Life is marked with losses, with suffering. That Yes, there's some times when things are positive and things are going well. But I always get nervous when things are going well because I know that you just give it a day or two and the hammer's going to fall and, and, and things are going to get bad again. And so uh, you, you, you've got broken relationships. Uh, you've got all kinds of terrible things that have occurred over the course of your lifetime. In fact, if you've spent any amount of time on the planet, um, <laughs> then your life is not just a bed of roses. It's struggle. It's pain. Why is that? Is the reason why that is is because we don't properly understand the, the, our potential? Well, we'll get into that in hour number two today. But the the, the biblical uh, the biblical anthropology, which is important to understand before you can properly get the biblical good news of Christ and Him crucified for your sins, the biblical anthropology tells us that the reason why everything is as bad as it is is because of man's rebellion and disobedience to God, and that man has earned God's wrath and judgment, eternal wrath and judgment for the sins that we've committed. You can think of, you know, if you were to put uh, human history on a timeline, there was a time, Adam and Eve, prior to their disobedience and rebellion against God, we refer to it as the fall. And at that time, they had they there was no sin in the world, there was no death, there was no disease, uh, and things were the way God intended them to be. And then man rebelled. Adam and Eve disobeyed God directly, and the the punishment for that was the consequences that we all see now: temporal, uh, you know, spiritual death at the time. And uh, you know, which, which will eventually lead to temporal and eternal death, you know, uh, for eternity, and uh, and so I mean some pretty serious consequences, and that's the reason why each and every one of us has 
problems that we face on a daily basis. Our bodies don't work right. Um, we gain weight or we don't gain weight at all. We, you know, you, you just, you know, we have blood pressure problems or the heart diseases or brain tumors, or, you know, it, it, colds and flus and, and, and children born with Down syndrome. And all this, all of this is a consequence of our sinful rebellion against God. And so if you're gospel, the gospel that your pastor is preaching and teaching doesn't truly get to the root cause, and the real root cause is our sin and our rebellion, then the then Christ hanging naked, bruised, beaten, scourged with a crown of thorns pressed into his head, uh, bleeding and dying and suffering and agony on the cross doesn't make any sense. Because what was happening on the cross is all of God's wrath being poured onto Jesus Christ, him drinking down to the dregs the full cup of the wine and fury of God's wrath for our for our sins. If we don't understand just how how awful and bad off we are, then the gospel that is preached isn't going to address that problem correctly. And when you have a basically lightened version, fluffy, you know, gospel of self-help and human potential, you know what you're de really dealing with is a false gospel that sends people to hell. The anathemas of Galatians chapter 1 come into play because if the gospel that's being preached in your church doesn't fully address the real issue, that we are all dead in trespasses and sins and by nature objects of God's wrath, and those who do not believe and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins remain under the wrath of God that they have earned as a result of their sinful rebellion against God, well, then you're not hearing the biblical gospel. You're hearing something that's going to send people to hell. And that's happening in church after church after church, in the United States and abroad. And this program helps teach you to listen for that so that you can know the truth and the truth will set you free. All right, let's talk about what we're gonna do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We've got a, a Todd Bentley update. Apparently, <clears throat> now that uh, Oprah Winfrey's uh, cable network station is up and running, uh, they've, yeah, they've got to fill you know, an entire broadcast day with new programming and so there's a a program called Our America with Lisa Ling on the Oprah Winfrey network and she recently did an interview with Todd Bentley and apparently Todd Bentley can smell cancer I had no idea about this but we're going to listen to Lisa Ling interview Todd Bentley I've got a news story from the Christian Post uh, by Brittany Smith uh, the headline reads too much me focus in evangelical community says Gospel Project Editor, and to which I would say amen. Um, bad news for those of you out there who believe that uh, Christians and Muslims worship the same God. Uh, that's bad news for guys like Miroslav Volf, Tony Jones, and other folks in the emergent crowd, and also some in the seeker-driven movement. Um, apparently the Grand Mufti of Saudi Arabia isn't buying into this Chrislam stuff. And uh, so I've got a report from uh, Molly Ziegler-Hemingway of uh, GetReligion.org uh, where she writes about the, the one of the recent pronouncements by the Grand Mufti of Saudi Arabia. And uh, and then we got Perry Noble offering advice on preaching better sermons. <laughs> you just can't make some of this stuff up. Yeah, Perry Noble offering advice on preaching better sermons. 
So, uh, and then in our sermon review today, we're going to be going down to Birmingham, Alabama, to a sermon series uh, entitled Soul Therapy. The sermon that we're going to be listening to is entitled Insecurity by a gentleman by the name of Chris Hodges from Church of the Highlands in Birmingham, Alabama. And uh, this is an example uh, of what I'm talking about, of a corrupt anthropology, which then results in a false gospel being preached, one that really misses the whole point and doesn't properly address the real issue that humanity faces. So you're not going to want to miss any of today's program. Make yourself comfortable um, I because we're going to be doing a Todd Bentley update, and technically he falls into the uh, the greater um, camp of the Patricia King gang. Um, I do think our warning is in order today here. Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouth atosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. Oh, yeah. Did you know that cancer had a smell to it? And that Todd Bentley spiritually has the ability to sniff out cancer? Well, that's what he recently told Lisa Ling of the uh, Our America um, Our America program on the now-launched Oprah Winfrey Network. Um, yeah, here's Todd Bentley to explain. How did you get this power? I got it by believing that it, that it's available and that it's available to everyday people that believe that God is who he says that he is and he can do what he says he can do. That's really where it's, it begins. There's a belief. Uh, okay, so God is who he says he is and he can do what he can, says he can do. I mean, it sounds so spiritual, right? But this is where he got his supernatural healing power. When did you realize you had this power and how did it manifest itself? I started Why do I, you know, oh man, you remember the uh, NBC television show Heroes or, you know, isn't this like the storyline of like, you know, all of like the major superhero uh, stories, you know, Batman or Spider-Man or the, you know, the, the television show Heroes. When did you get this power? I mean, so Todd Bentley is like, uh, you know, is like one of the superheroes, part of the Justice League. You know, one day he woke up and he realized he had special powers. Realizing I had a gift of discernment and how it worked in me was through touch. When there was cancer, a certain vibration would come into my arm. I've smelled cancer too. Sometimes I can smell, not all the time, and I can't turn it on and off. You said it smells like? Cancer smells like, have you ever lit a match and then the match goes out and you smell that sulfur? And what rotten eggs would smell like. If you could put those two odors together, that's how I would describe cancers. Would you say that there is a miracle in particular that you think is the most amazing that you've performed? I was in Indonesia. That you've performed. I thought God was the one who performed miracles. 
And uh, by the way, my question would be immediately, I don't know why Lisa Ling hasn't picked up on this. Uh, do you have any, you know, medically confirmed healings that you can point us to a doctor who said this person had uh, basically stinky egg smelling cancer and then now don't, no longer has it? So one time and this woman jumps up out of her seat, screams and comes walking down to the front with this tissue and in the tissue is a tumor. She said, when I was preaching, fire came on her leg. It got so hot, the tumor exploded right out of her skin. She was wearing a dress, slid down her leg, and fell on the floor. Uh-huh. And she was able to walk after this. So a tumor exploded out of her leg and fell on the floor. It sounds disgusting to me. I think she'd probably need to go see you know, a doctor after that particular healing. I, I, you know, that might have left a hole or something. So she picked the tumor up carried it down to the front, and I thought she was bringing me an offering because I was preaching. Do you have any video of this? And I said, what is it that you have there? And I took it, she put it in my hand, and I looked down, and the interpreter said, it's her tumor. I've had cancers oh God, come off crazy. people's faces when I prayed for them. Yeah, that's crazy, all right, Lisa. You, know, you don't even really, I don't even think about it anymore. What about doctors? I mean... Yeah. Do you do you negate the the purpose of doctors? Absolutely not. Medical doctors are gifted. I I believe they're gifted by heaven. I believe it's a blessing the medical system, and at the same time, it is our curse, because we can over rely on something, where we can have faith and God can heal. I do um, go to the doctor myself. I do get physicals. I think it's important. I mean, how is it that Todd Bentley is being held up as some man of God? That you know that. Christians need to listen to and emulate. I know what's going on. And if I do need to really approach God for healing, I'm, I'm much better if I really know what it is that's going on on the inside of me. So I thank God for doctors. At the same time, divine healing for me is, is a priority. It's something I believe we can have. And it's something for the hopeless. I've been in the jungles where they've never seen a doctor in their life. So how do they get healed? All they have is faith. So quite often the miracles will even be greater in situations where there's great poverty and devastation, there's greater miracles. Where do you see this going? <laughs> you know, I know that the road has been a little bit rocky. Yeah, it's been up, it's been down, it can be controversial, you know, I haven't made... You are not without controversy. I'm not without controversy, I haven't made all the best choices either, I, I, I have a humanness still too. Oh, yeah, a humanness. He has a humanness. Really, I had no idea. And I have a faith in God. And I always tell people I'm a work in progress, as you are. Do you think that anyone can learn how to heal? Um, I think you can help people have faith to believe in healing. I think there's, you can teach people how to pray for the sick and you know, how to be more effective maybe when they do pray for the sick. Yeah, I think anybody has the ability to pray in the name of Jesus. And God answers prayer. That's that's for the smallest, the least of these, to the greatest. Everybody can pray for healing. And I encourage them to. Yeah, so there you go. Our America with Lisa Ling, where... Boy, that was just crazy. All right, we are up on our first break. Um, if you would like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address... Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
Jesus did not die for your 401k. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. It's... Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. The management of Marty Python's Flying Circus Church would like to apologize to all of our listeners. Normally, we do parody here at Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, due to unforeseen circumstances and the current miserable state of the church, uh, we can no longer parody the church because the church just parodies itself. For proof of this particular concept, uh, we now present to you um, the uh, Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. I'll tell you, three weeks ago, we did a Friday Night School of the Spirit, and we saw 12 people heal the Word of Knowledge and 40 healed doing the Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. Let's just go ahead and do that and see what the Lord does. You guys okay to do a little Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey? Can you lead it? All right, Brian's going to lead us in the Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. You can Put your right hand in, put your right hand out. You put your right hand in, you put your right hand out. You put your right hand in, you dig your right hand out. You put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand out. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand out. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand out. Put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it, all of that jump in, jump in, and shake it all with the arms, uh, nothing, nothing real effect, but then as soon as I just start, we start doing the whole, who put your left foot in, your right foot in, both of my knees, you know, one at a time, I could just feel, all of a sudden, it's like there was no pain, I said, you said, start checking yourself, I just squat down. That's awesome, thank you, Lord, for new knees, in yes. Jesus' name, come on, come on. Um, I've had back problems most of my life, and a couple, about a week ago, my back had gone out, and it was somewhat better, but it was still sore. Uh, up until today, and when we did that hokey pokey, and she came up and testified, all the pain. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. Shake it, shake it, shake it all about. You put your whole head in, you take your whole head out. You put your whole head in, take your whole head out. You put your whole head in, take your whole head. Put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about, and you shake it, 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 and you shake it. your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. 
Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, if you think that Todd Bentley is a real Christian man of God who heals people, well, you're being deceived. And I I have a bridge in New York I'd like to sell you. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. It's time for a Chrislam update. Not that there really is such a thing, but... Doesn't Ahula Akbar just sound so beautiful as the counter melody to Ave Maria? Enough of that. Okay, so uh, yeah, that's going to be our uh, music that we use whenever we have a Chrysalum update. So uh, Molly Ziegler Hemingway of uh, GetReligion.org, uh, uh, she's also a LCMS Lutheran. Uh, Molly has a uh, p- recent post at GetReligion.org entitled "Got News: Destroy All Churches." <laughs> Destroy all churches. Apparently, the Grand Mufti of Saudi Arabia hasn't bought into this Chrislam thing. Maybe he hasn't read Miroslav Volf's latest book entitled Allah, uh, and, uh, you know, where he basically comes up with the explosive conclusion that, uh, well, there's enough significant common ground between Allah and and the God that Christians worship that we can probably just throw out the idea that they're two completely different deities altogether and just, you know, embrace the idea that everybody worships the same God. Well, <clears throat> Molly writes, she says, Saudi Arabia is known for its brutal repression of religious freedom 
And uh, and here's how the State Department has put it. Saudi Arabia is an Islamic monarchy with legal protection for freedom of religion, and such protection does not exist in practice. Islam is the official religion, and the law requires that all citizens be Muslims. The government prohibits the public practice of non-Muslim religions. The government recognizes the right of non-Muslims to worship in private, however. It does not always respect this right in practice. Molly then continues. She says... It's a horrible situation for religious minorities. Obviously, they do exist there despite the kingdom's coercive attempts. I don't know if I don't know if the lack of coverage about the situation is due to Saudi Arabia being an ally of the United States and Great Britain or what. But last week, Saudi Arabia's highest official of religious law moved to expand the religious repression to other countries. Here's how the Arabian Business News put it. Quote the Grand Mufti of Saudi Arabia has said it is necessary to destroy all the churches of the region following Kuwait's move to ban their construction. Speaking to a delegation in Kuwait, Sheikh Abdul Aziz bin Abdullah stressed that since the tiny Gulf state was a part of the Arabian Peninsula, it was necessary to destroy all the churches in the country, Arabic media have reported Saudi Arabia's top cleric made the comment in view of an age-old rule that only Islam can be practiced in the region. Oh, isn't that just great? So, <laughs> so yeah, somebody needs to send um, the Grand Mufti of Saudi Arabia the latest memos, uh, you know, coming out of the emergent church movement, as well as maybe even send him a copy of... Um, Jim Hinch's articles uh, that uh, the, the, the theological progress has been made on this front and uh, that the members of the seeker driven church and the emergent church have come to the conclusion that theologically that Allah and Yahweh are really the same God. So this idea of going out and destroying uh, Christian churches um, is so unnecessary now. I mean, isn't why isn't this guy buying into the whole Chrislam thing? I, you know, I'm just wondering, hmm. <laughs> you know, maybe because the guy actually understands Islam and understands that Allah and Yahweh can't possibly be the same God, and therefore he's acting according to that particular knowledge. I mean, just, you know, just a thought there. But, you know, apparently somebody needs to get that guy up to speed. I don't know how he's going to fit into the New World Order if he doesn't, um, you know, buy into this idea that <clears throat> Allah and Yahweh are the same deity. <clears throat> Moving along here. Brittany Smith of the Christian Post, and she is rapidly becoming one of my favorite um, journalists there at the Christian Post, has a headline that reads, Too Much Me Focus, an evangelical community says Gospel Project Editor. Brittany writes, she says, uh, There is too much of a me focus in evangelical Christianity today, said an editor of the Gospel Project and author of Counterfeit Gospels Rediscovering the Good News in a World of False Hope. In a webcast on Wednesday explaining Lifeway Christian Resources, the Gospel Project, Trevin Wax, managing editor of the project, told listeners that the Bible is not a self-help book, which is why the Gospel Project is more than just a curriculum or self-help guide. The Gospel Project is a small group curriculum for all ages that tells the overarching story of the scripture. The project examines the Bible from start to finish and is meant to reveal to participants how every story and theological concept points to Jesus 
so that they don't miss the point. Quote, the church is God's gospel project. We are his project, Wax said. It's possible to scour and search the scriptures and to miss the point. It's easy to come to the scripture looking for just new information or immediate application. We can even have Bible knowledge and not be focused on Christ, he elaborated on LifeWay's website. Matt Chandler, and pastor of the Village Church and a member of the advisory council for the project, said in the webcast that in today's world, you can't just assume that people have understood and been transformed by the gospel, even if they have heard it. He stressed that the church and pastors should, quote, make sure they are steadily keeping the gospel in front of our people. The Bible is teaching the gospel consistently, if not constantly. He mentioned that in, it is also important for pastors to help their congregation become attached to the word of God so they read it correctly. He said that at his church in Texas, he is constantly trying to give people a 30,000-foot view of the gospel so they can see how God continually moves forward and is faithful. Chandler stressed that you have to look at the Bible with the whole picture in mind. J.D. Greer, pastor of North Carolina-based Summit Church, said that by looking at the Bible with a big-picture mentality, you begin to see what God has done and how he orchestrated our salvation. Quote, The gospel is not just how we begin Christian life, it's how we grow in the Christian life. When our heart changes, our actions change as we grow deeper into the gospel, our hearts are captivated by the grace of God. This produces changes and application that last, but it has to be grounded in the gospel, Greer stressed. Now, these are the great points that uh, Trevin Wax, Greer, and Matt Chandler are making in this article. And I think they are really on to something here, and I think that what they're saying is absolutely correct. Over and again, we hear sermons here at Fighting for the Faith where the emphasis is always on life change. You know, People understand that something's wrong, and they want data. They want information on how to make things right. The problem is, is that the applications that are being given to them by many of these pastors have no gospel in them. It's not, it's not a change that's based upon regeneration, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. It's life change really vis-a-vis applying biblical principles or applying biblical knowledge or doing this and doing that, but it's all disconnected from the gospel itself. So, and what is that indicative of? Well, it's indicative of the me focus that every human being brings to the church naturally that has to be curbed, repented of, and confronted by good gospel preaching. So I'm very happy to hear about this curriculum, this gospel project curriculum, and pray that they continue to uh, point a lot of pastors back to the fact that the gospel isn't just our ticket into the fun park of Christianity. That's not what it is. But the gospel is the center and substance of the entire Christian faith. And without it, you're not producing the fruit of the Spirit. You're just producing, well pull yourself up by your bootstrap self-help type of life change which anybody can get anywhere it, you know you don't need a crucified and risen savior for that okay moving along oh it really doesn't matter what i do what i do as long as i do it with, with a flare 
what effect the little smoke is with a dash of hocus-pocus and the scent of burning sulfur in the air. I'm a fraud, a hoax, a charlatan, a joke, but they love me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flower. Ah, yeah, it's time for a Perry Noble update. matter what I say, what I say, as long as I say it with a flower. First I rattle off a ready stock of gibberish and poppycock and fix you with my best hypnotic stare. With my moans and groans and sufferific tones, they have cheered me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say. I sell it when I tell it with a C. Yeah, there we go. All right, so that's our Perry Noble update uh, with a flair. The uh, headline for this story uh, reads, Mega Church Pastors Offer Advice on Preaching Better Sermons. This is written by Lillian Kwan of the uh, Christian Post. And it <laughs> right there on the page, it features a photograph of Perry Noble giving a discussion on how to preach better sermons. <laughs> this would be like going to Al Capone and getting advice on how to file taxes. Uh, <clears throat> Anyway, uh, Lillian Kwan writes, she says, How do preachers, uh, particularly megachurch pastors, prepare for sermons every week? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Folks, listen, seriously. I mean, going to a seeker-driven megachurch pastor on advice on how to um, prepare for a sermon, how to, do, how to preach better, would be like going to somebody who's currently beating his wife and asking for marital advice. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, in, in, what is this indicative of? Uh, plain and simple. There is a big misconception in the church today that somehow big churches, mega churches, equal successful churches. And if you have a mega church and there's a lot of people showing up, that that means that you're preaching in such a way that you're drawing people and that this is what God is blessing in order to... No, no, that's not what this means. Okay, Scripture warns us, warns us that in the last days, people will gather around themselves teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. And just because somebody has a big megachurch doesn't mean that they're successful as a Christian pastor or as a preacher. I mean, I guarantee you, listen, folks, I, I have been around Christianity long enough to know there are certain pastors throughout the ages whose sermons have, well, they're so good and so time-honored and so classic and so well-constructed that there are people today still reading them, okay? I would think of the sermons of Augustine, of John Christostom, Martin Luther. Uh, you can even say John Wesley, uh, uh, Spurgeon, C.F.W. Walther. These are people whose sermons have withstood, you know, the kind of the, the test of time. Now, I said Wesley in there, although I don't I'm not I'm not a Wesleyan and I dis, I disagree with his doctrine of sanctification wholeheartedly. Um it, 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 how does that formula work with uh, Wesleyanism? It's uh justified, sanctified and then terrified. That, you know, it's law gospel law. So, you know, he's I Wesley falls down hard when it comes to the doctrine of sanctification, and I would point you to his work, A Plain Account of Christian Perfection, as an example of what's wrong with Wesley's theology. 
and you know and, and those things but the point I'm sorry I'm off on a tangent the point being this is that um a hundred years from now okay should the Lord tarry okay should the Lord tarry and the earth continues on for you know another hundred years I mean I don't know when Jesus is coming back it might be seven thousand years from now I mean we can be like way away from Jesus's return couldn't tell you when he's coming back he hasn't told me but the point being is is that a hundred years from now uh, will there be pastors and, you know, will there be people out there, you know, who will be reviewing and listening to the sermons of Perry Noble? I mean, is Perry Noble like a Spurgeon? You understand? Is he, is he, is he like a Martin Luther? Is he like a CFW Walther? Not on your life. There aren't going to be people out there, you know, from time to time on Twitter, there's certain people I follow, you know, they'll throw out a really cool Spurgeon quote or a really good Walther quote or a good Luther quote or a good Chemnitz quote, even a good Augustine quote or a good John Christostom quote. And it's fun to watch those things because, you know, you some it's some really terse, really compact, well-said theological statement put down, you know, that you can put on Twitter and it's fun to read those, you know, so-and-so said this, or, you know, the great quote, and then there's there's the quote, and then it says Christostom or Augustine or something like that. And people retweet those because there's, they're just timeless nuggets of truth, highly compacted, good turn of phrase. There are not going to be people 100 years from now tweeting about Perry Noble's sermon. Perry Noble said, you know, highway to hell rules. You, or you, you understand what I'm saying. I'm sorry, but, um, go, again, going to Perry Noble to get advice on how to preach better sermons. I mean, seriously. I mean, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> so let me read this again. How do preachers, particularly megachurch pastors, prepare for some sermons every week? Where do they get their ideas? Do they ever get nervous? And how do they deal with both criticism and praise? Those are some of the questions that a group of well-known pastors responded to during a webcast Thursday that was designed to help pastors across the country preach better sermons. According to Casey Graham, founder of PreachingRocket.com. <laughs> really? Okay. Uh, which led the event, 90% of unchurched people choose a church based on the pastor or preaching, and 92% of the pe uh, people return to a church because of a sermon. Again, I would just point to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Okay, in the last days, people will gather for themselves preachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. So yeah, I'm with you, uh, Casey Graham of PreachingRocket.com. People will choose a church based upon the preaching because they're going there to hear what they want to hear, not because they want to hear the truth. And when you, when you see something like that going on, that doesn't show that there's any biblical fidelity going on whatsoever, and that pastor should not be held up as somebody we need to listen to. Anyway, with that, the PreachBetterSermons.com event was launched to provide insights into the way some of the country's most influential pastors do what they do to provide a community in the lonely world of preparing and preaching sermons. New Spring Church pastor Perry Noble advised the thousands of pastors watching online to begin with the Word of God and not a VH1 video or popular song. Quote, let the text, the Bible, drive the sermon. Don't say, I saw a video on VH1 and want to establish a sermon around that, the South Carolina megachurch pastor exhorted. The Word of God has to be where it starts. I'm so passionate about that. 
No, you're not, Perry Noble. I mean, is this a question? Is this an example of do what I say, but don't do what I do? I mean, seriously. I mean, does Perry Noble, how on earth can he expect anybody to take him seriously when just, well, a while ago, a little over a year ago, Perry Noble said this at his Unleash conference regarding how he chose what to do, what he did, what he did for Easter Sunday at New Spring. Here's Perry Noble. Every once in a while, I have this thought, we got to piss off the religious people. How are we going to do that? This is to an audience of pastors. A few years ago, I was thinking about it because Easter was coming. You know, and we weren't going to do the ribbon dancers, Arise, my love. Arise, my love. Arise, my love. The grave no longer has a hold on you. That's going to be on freaking YouTube. Bye. <laughs> so I'm praying one morning. I'm like, God, how are we going to start this thing out? I'm in my basement. I got my iPod. I'm lifting weights. The song by ACDC, Highway to Hell, comes on. I said, that'll do it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, so let me, again, let me read the quote here. Um, let the text, the Bible, drive the sermon. Don't say, I saw a video on VH1 and want to establish a sermon. You know, again, when I think of New Springs sermons, I just don't think, I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is, is that he's not letting the biblical text drive the sermon. He is not an exegetical preacher by any means. In fact, by the way, here's uh, New Springs uh, uh, praise band with Lee McDermott, uh, fronting the praise band uh, and opening up their Easter service on in That's right. That's Easter service, um, Easter Sunday, Notice this is a performance. This isn't worship, but uh, hang on a second. Let me go back to this quote. <clears throat> Perry Noble says, quote, let the text, the Bible drive the sermon. Don't say I saw a video on VH1 and want to establish a sermon around that. Okay. Um, 
or you know may, maybe you want to say don't don't you know be lifting weights and you know listening to your iPod and you know and then to have a song come on and then say I want to you know do a sermon around that I mean, that wouldn't make any sense now I mean no pastor would want to do that especially when giving advice to other pastors about how to preach better sermons Enough of ACDC. What about, you know, not too long ago, <laughs> New Spring, you know, played the Katy Perry uh, song. Yeah, here, here. Makes me wonder if they're going to hold the uh, 2013, at least some of the auditions for American Idol over at New Spring. I, I, that would make a you know be, be pretty good, don't you? Think? Yeah, I have no idea what the, how this fits into a church service. But then again, hang on a second. The advice was about how to preach better. Sermons. <clears throat> New Spring Pastor Perry Noble advised the thousands of pastors watching online to begin with the Word of God and not a VH1 video or popular song. Let the text, the Bible, drive the sermon. Yeah, hang on a second here. <clears throat> Let me look at the uh, New Spring podcast feed here. All right, I'm just going to read the the names of uh, of the sermons that they've preached this year at uh, New Spring. Um. From the All In series, based upon a gambling theme, you know, poker, All In, we've got the With All My Heart, Losing My Mind, Giving It All I've Got. These are the names of the sermons. This is How We Change the World. This is How We Change the World. Isn't that based on the Captain EO song from Disneyland? Never mind. Um, and then All In Aftermath. And then we got a new sermon series entitled Overwhelmed, How to Overcome Being Overwhelmed. Uh, win the battle with depression, stop worrying about the economy, overcome stress and anxiety, uh, know, God's love, uh, God, know God loves me and has a purpose for my life. Hmm, yeah, I'm just not seeing, yeah, just the names of these sermons and sermon series doesn't really lend itself to the idea that <clears throat> Perry Noble actually you know, lets the Bible drive... <clears throat> the sermon. Um, let me see. Okay. <clears throat> Let the text, the Bible drive the sermon. Don't say I saw a video on VH1. 
and I want to establish a sermon around that, the South Carolina megachurch pastor exhorted, uh, probably fibbed would be the right word, uh, the word of God has to be where it starts. I'm so passionate about that. Again, big fib there. Uh, that does not bear out in his actions. The uh, Christian Post then continues, Noble, whose church is getting ready to launch its eighth campus, said nearly every idea that he has preached on for the last uh, for the past five years came out of his quiet time. He made it clear, however, that his quiet time with the Lord is not sermon prep time. Quote, but while I'm reading the Bible, I, I try my best to hear the voice of God. If something pops into my mind, I write it down. Yeah, a preacher preaches best when he preaches out of the overflow of his heart. I really want to try my best to communicate that idea that God set my heart on fire with. It makes perfect sense. So out of the overflow of Perry Noble's heart, we get this. Out of the overflow of his heart. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask me, my friend, on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. Yeah, 
getting preaching advice from Perry Nobles like getting investment advice from Bertie Madoff. You know what I'm saying? the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us via church of the highlands birmingham alabama chris hodges presiding the name of the sermon series is soul therapy the name of the sermon is insecurity Now, as you listen to this sermon, you will note how he does not properly handle God's word. He will engage in narcissistic eisegesis. He will cherry-pick verses out of context, try to create the impression that it's biblical by alluding to the Greek. But ultimately, he misses the point. Why? Because he has a corrupt anthropology that then ultimately gives him a false gospel. This is ear-tickling at its, well, worst. All right, we're going to kill the music here. So without any further ado, here is Chris Hodges and his sermon entitled Soul Therapy Insecurity. Here we go. We begin each year with celebration, which quickly turns into reflection and a long list of resolutions. Lose weight, work out, read more, slow down, eat better. Unfortunately, by mid-year, most of us find ourselves back at square one. What if there was a better way? What would this year look like if instead of a fad diet, we took a deeper look at some of the things that are happening inside each and every one of us? Maybe, just maybe, this could be a year of real change. Welcome today to week number four and the conclusion of the series that we have called Soul Therapy. And as always, we're so glad that we have church family that just happens to meet in other auditoriums. Some are just next door in our theater here at Grants Mill and others are watching online. And then we've got the two incredible other campuses here in the Birmingham area at River Chase and Greystone. And then, of course, the three out-of-town campuses in Montgomery, Auburn, and Tuscaloosa. And I don't want to forget the amazing men who are meeting every week, over 300 of them at the Bibb County Correctional Facility. We love you guys with all of our heart today. Come on, Grant Smith, would you say hello to your church family? Put your hands together. God bless you guys. In fact, just before the service, this service began, I've got a, a text from a friend of mine who actually lives in Malaysia. And, uh, and she's home for a while before she comes back, and she says she's watching the service today. So even for those that are watching, we've got some that watch on military bases around the world. We love you guys, and it's always so much fun just to gather together. Uh, and thank God for technology, the miracle of technology. We've been in this series, and I really believe it's a series that has the potential to change our lives, soul therapy. And the idea is, is that all of us want some kind of life change. We want some yeah. things to change. And most of 
Now, notice what he's saying here. This is based upon the idea. All of us want some kind of life change. Well, what's wrong with your life? Why is it all messed up? Answer, because you are sinful by nature. You are corrupted by sin. And you are suffering the consequences of your sin. That's a biblical anthropology. Well, let's see what he says. Let us wait for this moment in time, this new year time, because the new year kind of serves as this fresh start, kind of this catalyst moment where we can say, well, you know, I'm going to get a do-over, and so I'm going to have these resolutions, and I'm going to try to change my life a little bit. And unfortunately, studies have shown that it's not working very well. More than 80% of resolutions really don't even make it to Valentine's Day. It's not working. And the reason why it's not working, what we believe, is that anytime you try to change any type of external behavior without addressing what's going on the inside, the real you, it really just doesn't work. But that's what we do. We try to change our schedules. We try to change our diet. We're going to try to read more. We're going to slow down a bit. Now, notice what he's doing here, basically saying, hey, have you tried to experience life change on your own? Well, you can't experience life change unless you do it the church's way. So what is this? The church is basically offering the secret information and data necessary for you to have what you've always wanted, and that's, well, lasting life change. Uh-oh. Sounds like we're taking the uh, fruits of the Holy Spirit and turning it into some kind of a product or commodity. Bit. But if nothing ever changes on the inside, it's just simply not going to work because you don't change your life outside in. Your life has to change inside out. If you make the right changes on the inside, it'll affect the resolution list that all of us want to change. Now, no one has a resolution list of internal change, and that's what we've challenged you to do. Take a look at the soul. Look at the inside part of you. We've, we've addressed addictions, which I believe all of us are addicts in some kind of a way. We addressed that, found a root cause, gave you some things you can physically go do to see that change. We dealt with depression, the fact that we may be smiling on the outside, but we have real inner turmoil going on in the inside. There's, there's a depression going on inside. We've dealt with anger, uh, the frustration, the disgust that happens inside of us from time to time, and that was an interesting message last week. Today we're going to deal with our identity, the, how we view ourselves, and this message is for every person who's secretly just, you don't like yourself. You, 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 if you mm-hmm. Oh, okay. If you had it your way, you would not only change a few things, you would change everything. It's for every person who has this inferiority going on inside, this insecurity, this... this, now, this now, I want to point something out. Sin and its consequences are universal. But this, this sermon apparently is just for a particular subset of sinners out there. But he's, I wonder if he's going to even say that. Uh, a particular subset, those who don't like themselves on the inside. Mm-hmm. Low self-esteem. And I just want you to know. Low self-esteem. Yeah, my problem is, is not low self-esteem. It's that I have way too high of esteem for myself. That seems to be at the, well, the heart of uh, sinning, don't you think? Adam and Eve, when uh, they were tempted by Satan in the garden, Right. What did Satan say? You will be like God when you eat of the fruit. You will be like God. Oh, I will, I'll be like God? Oh, yeah. See, the problem with sin is that uh, we make ourselves God. We become little gods, if you would. It's not a problem of low self-esteem. It is a complete problem of way too high of esteem of ourselves, as if somehow we know better than God. 
That's really at the heart of sin. Up front, this is a message probably about all four of them that hits closest to home. It's a message that I've, it's a topic that I've struggled with my whole life, and I'm going to tell you more about that a little later uh, in the service. But there's a verse I want to begin with in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. It says, be careful how you think. Be careful what your self-assessment is. Be careful how you've defined yourself because your life ends up being shaped by your thoughts. What verse are you reading again? This text doesn't say anything of the sort. Now, we're off to a bad start here. Um, He was quoting, by the way, from Proverbs chapter 4, supposedly verse 23. But I want you to listen to what it says in a good translation. I use the English Standard Version, and here's what it says. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. There you go. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for for it uh, from it flow the streams of life. Let's listen again to what he does with this text, because what he's saying here doesn't even remotely sound like anything that's in Proverbs chapter 4, especially in verse 23. Here we go again. There's a verse I want to begin with in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. It says, be careful how you think. Be careful what your self-assessment is. Be care- careful how you think. Careful how you, what your self-assessment is. Hmm. Hebrews 4.23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Nothing in there about self-assessment. Careful how you've defined yourself. Nothing in there about how you've defined yourself either. You're literally sticking words into the biblical text that are not there, and you're basically teaching them as if God has revealed them and he hasn't. Because your life ends up being shaped by your thoughts. Now, I maintain that we are defining ourselves and we are shaped by this definition, and the definition has been a wrong one. I think if we're like most people, we've let two things define us. I want you to write these down today if you're taking... So we're all suffering from bad self-definitions based upon a bad reading of Proverbs 4.23, which this verse doesn't say this. Taking notes, and that is, I think we've let culture define who we are we've let culture say yeah so that's the problem that jesus came to fix to solve the problem of culture defining who we are no hey what's important the the culture's got it all wrong culture has said that if you're good looking on the outside then you are an awesome person yeah it looks it's all about your look so we'll work hard and we'll do anything, spend all kinds of money and, and, and do anything we can to change our physical appearance. But you- now the world does tell us this and the world is wrong because the world's values are wrong because they're warped, twisted, and really wretched as account, on account of our sinful nature. You got to be very clear. God's not looking at the outward appearance. He's looking on the heart, the Bible says. And, but yet we, we've let culture say, oh, no, this is important. And so we. Uh, by the way, God looking into your heart's not good news. Because what do we find when we get in there? Mm, out of the heart comes all kinds of sinful thoughts, desires, and sin has its origin in our hearts, Jesus said. We idolize these good looking people, and they're all airbrushed. 
They tummy tucking and they're doing all kinds of crazy things that we can't afford, right? And they're doing all these things to try to make themselves look good. And we idolize them and call them, you know, successful. And we, we've actually put our own definition of success to it. You heard about the lady who, who uh, she went to church and she got, this, she got this personal prophecy from someone who says, God's guaranteeing you, you're going to live another 40 years. She says, man. God's giving me that kind of guarantee. I'm going I'm to I'm look better. So she went to the doctor and got some things, you know, tummy tucking and liposuction and, and, and injections and enhancements and all kinds. She's like, I'm going to look good if I'm going to last another 40 years. Next day she dies. She got killed in a wreck and she got to heaven. She said, God, I thought you promised I was going to live another 40 years. She goes, he goes, oh, I didn't recognize you. So you got to be careful with all that. That's actually not in my notes, so I'm going to come back over here. And um, Sometimes my mind just goes crazy. All right, so. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. I thought it was funny, too. Yeah, none of those things define you. We've said possessions. The world says, oh, no, if you're wealthy, you got it going on. It's a lie. It's a lie. If you perform, so we live our lives playing the game, trying to enhance the wrong things. And we've let culture define who we are, and it's not working. The second thing, and this probably hits closer to home to most of you. Now notice he's not exegetically preaching. He started with his own theology, and he's hopscotching. Well, he's only landed on one out-of-context verse, if you could even call it that. But at this point, this is all just pure speculation on his part. He's not teaching biblical doctrine. This is all just his own theology that he's spinning himself. Is that we let our past define who we are. Our past. Yeah, we're living our lives looking through the rear view mirror. So let our past define who we are. Hmm. Sounds like a psychological problem to me, not the real root problem, which is our sin. We're letting what has happened be who we are and what we will be. And once again, you got to realize that the God you and I serve is not limited to or even interested in what has happened in the past. He not- he, he's not interested in or limited to. What does that statement mean? And what I mean, this I mean, it sounds kind of like the gospel sorta ish. But uh, what are you talking about? Finally, wants to forgive it. The Bible says he wants to cleanse you from your yesterdays so that you don't live your lives defining yourself by what has happened, but what could happen. He so he wants to cleanse me from my yesterdays so that I can be defined not by what has happened, but, but by what could happen. Hmm. That's not the gospel. It's hijacked some gospel language poured out the biblical meaning of those words and poured in its own, this is self-help psychobabble. It's your potential. And we've let things, some of you, this is real. You've let negative words that have been spoken over you, some of you still live in environments where you hear junk about you every day. You've had people that you have said are important to you, maybe your father, maybe it's a boss, maybe it's been a teacher, say things to you that has been demeaning. And it's destroyed you. You're living through those tragic words. Some of you have gone through tragic experiences. And it's like it branded you. I mean, I I, I say to my brothers that are watching uh, from 
the correctional facility down at Bibb. I'm going to tell you, God doesn't see what you have done. You're paying the price of what you, you know, of what you did do, but God sees the potential in you. He's not limited to our past. He's God sees the potential in me. Hmm. Do you have a Bible verse that says that God is up in heaven seeing the potential that I have in me? This is this is not biblical doctrine. This is scratching, itching ears. And it's a false anthropology that doesn't recognize what the Bible teaches regarding our sinful and fallen nature. Sees your potential in your future, and you got to realize that. And as long as we walk around branded by all of that, it'll destroy you. It'll keep you from realizing your potential. I'm going to tell you, you're never going to make any progress. You're never going to see, you will never see any of your resolutions ever get any type of real. Oh no, I'll never make, I'll never make progress in my resolutions if I don't understand my potential. (laughs) This is just terrible. Oh, this sounds worse than hell energy in them and real power in them as long as you basically don't like what you see in the mirror. You don't like who you are. So each week what I've done is bring us to a root cause. Why? Why do I see myself that way and what can be done about it? And to get the answers and find the cause today, I want to basically give you two different passages of Scripture, and I want to kind of break it down for you just a little bit. I want to begin in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, just one verse. And I'm going to tell you Romans chapter 12, verse 3. Hmm. Again, what, what is it with these guys who seem to think that they're actually engaging in biblical teaching but they won't actually read and teach the text in context. Do you think you can make any sense of the book of Romans just by sampling chapter 12, verse 3? Can you make any sense of that book? What it is that God has revealed? What's what's the point of the point that's being made in verse 3 of chapter 12? If all we're going to do is look at verse 3 of chapter 12. Well, let's conduct a, a little bit of an experiment here. I, I'm going to uh, pull up on my Kindle here. I'm going to pull up a, a book. I'm just going to grab a, a, a you know, I, I happen to down, have downloaded a ton of the classics of Western civilization. Books like, well, Sense and Sensibility, Pygmalion, The House of Seven Gables, Robinson Crusoe, Dante's The Divine Comedy, Arthur Conan Doyle's The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. How about Treasure Island or Gulliver's Travels or Dickens's A Tale of Two Cities? You know, when you, these are just you know some of the uh, classics of Western civilization. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to um, I'm going to pick a book that maybe a lot of folks have not re- uh, read, and that would be uh, Dostoevsky's Dostoevsky's The Idiot. And what we're going to do here, hang on a second here, I got to get to the um, Got to get to the chapter headings here. Here we go. Um, I'm going to go to, okay, now I'm not going to read anything up to this point. I'm going to just go to chapter 12, okay, and see if you can figure out the storyline of this book, okay, The Idiot by Dostoevsky. And I'm going to start here, and I'm going to read one sentence. Are you ready? Here it is. Books like 
well, Sense and Sensibility, Pygmalion, The House of Seven Gables, Robinson Crusoe, Dante's The Divine Comedy, Arthur Conan Doyle's The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. How about Treasure Island or Gulliver's Travels or Dickens's A Tale of Two Cities? You know, when you, these are just, you know, some of the uh, classics of Western civilization. So what I'm going to do here is I'm going to um, I'm going to pick a book that maybe a lot of folks have not re uh, read. And that would be uh, Dostoevsky's, Dostoevsky's The Idiot. And what we're going to do here, hang on a second here. I got to get to the, um, got to get to the chapter headings here. Here we go. Um, I'm going to go to, okay, now I, I'm not going to read anything at, up to this point. I'm going to just go to chapter 12, okay, and see if you can figure out the storyline of this book, okay, this, you know, The Idiot by Dostoevsky, and I'm going to start here, and I'm going to read one sentence. Are you ready? Here it is. He was waiting for the prince, and no sooner did the latter appear than he began a long harangue about something or other, but so far gone was he that the prince could hardly understand a word. There you go. Now, would you please outline for me um, the entire plot and meta-narrative of Dostoevsky's um, The Idiot. Can you do it from that sentence? Can you tell me what the book is about? No cheating. If you've, if, if you've never read it, okay, you, you don't get to cheat and go and look it up. That was like the third sentence in uh, paragraph one of chapter 12. Can you tell me anything about the book? I mean, if you were, <clears throat> folks, um, go back to, you know, I, I've used this metaphor before, um, go back to elementary school, and you've been given the assignment of giving a book report, right? Um, would you get an A or an F if you decided that for your book report, you were going to teach chapter 12, sentence 3 of The Idiot? Do you think you could have a, a logical, I mean, if, if the uh, teacher asked you, did you read the book? He said, well, I don't need to. I just read chapter 12, sentence 3. I mean, I can understand the whole book, understand what the whole... I mean, I, I get the whole gist of it just by reading that small portion. It's ridiculous, right? Well, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous if you call this Bible teaching. This isn't Bible teaching. He's ripping sentences and half sentences out of context, reading from bizarre, I don't know what he was reading from in that Proverbs thing. And we're supposed to have, this is supposed to somehow be some kind of a logical, coherent thought that God revealed in his word? Hardly. We're not learning anything about what God has said in his word here. We continue. Tell you up front what I'm going to do. And that is, I want to, what I did is actually read this verse in the Greek language. Now, your, your, your New Testament... A whole verse in the Greek language. Wow, did it hurt? The original manuscripts of your New Testament was written, written in the Greek language. And it's very important from time to time to go look at the real meanings of those words because the English translators, they did a great job, but they're very limited. The, the, the... Yeah, I completely agree. It's very important that any good biblical teacher know his biblical languages. You really, really get to, to understand what's going on in the biblical text when you read it in the original languages. But don't you think it's just like a little bit of overkill? to have to translate an entire verse. I mean, you might break a nail or something. You know, 
Greek language is four times more descriptive than the English language. So really, honestly, they're just not single words that translate well. They did the best they could. And in most cases, it's very good. But in this case, it really doesn't give you the full meaning of this verse. So I want to I show you this verse kind of broken down in the original language. We're not going to read it in context, which context would add a lot more than just the Greek here. We're not going to read it in the gr grander scope of the whole book, which would really give us the ability to understand what's going on here. No, no, no. We're going to read a single sentence out of context, but we're going to reference the Greek so we can really dig down into it. You know what I'm saying? Who? Romans chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Do not think of yourself more. And notice I've underlined the word highly. Do not think of yourself more highly. Now, that's not actually the word. The word's not like you're walking around thinking you got it going on. It's actually a very different word. It says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Now, that's a fairly good translation, but it's actually a little deeper than just sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. Now, the first word, highly, if you look at that word, if you study it, it's hooperfaneo in the Greek, and it literally does not mean highly like you just think of yourself highly. It literally means you have an improper view. You have the wrong view. You've made a bad self-assessment. It literally means you're not in your right mind. You have actually bought into an idea and a definition that's not consistent with what God sees inside of you. And honestly, most of us. Okay, from the English, the Greek-English lexicon in the New Testament and other Christian literature, third edition, otherwise known as BDAG, uh, we have the, uh, the, the meaning of the word hooparphraneo, to think too highly of oneself, to be Haughty. Yeah, that's what it means. It means to think too highly of yourself. In other words, you're suffering from high self-esteem. Have let something brand who we are. We've let it define us. That's not true. That's not what hooperfaneo means. And it's destroying our lives. And then it says, instead of having the hooperfaneo, it's, it's, what's interesting is, is this word sober is the same it has the same root words as hooperphaneo, it's sophroneo in the Greek, which means they're, they're, they're related. These two words are related. And it literally means being in your right mind or having a right mind. Now, it goes even a little deeper than the definition I gave you. Because I'll, one of the things you do when you're studying original language is you not only look at the Greek definition in the Greek lexicon and the, and the dictionaries, but then you go look at the other places they use it in Scripture, and it even broad, broadens it even more. And the other place that sophroneo, or sober, is used is in the story where Jesus cast the devil out of that guy, the one who was cut, cutting himself and throwing himself into a fire and was trying to drown himself, and they couldn't chain him up. He was full of the devil. And Jesus comes along and casts the devil out of him, and he, and he finds himself... All of a sudden, okay, and the Bible says after, he, after Jesus cast the devil out of him, he was now over there, sophroneo, in his right mind. So the word literally means more than just being in your right mind, that it might need some type of deliverance. We might need to be freed from the wound, the hurt, the bad definition that has branded us. By we might need to be healed from the bad psychological definition. Notice he's, he, he's even 
eisegeting, sticking his own, he's making up his own Greek definitions. By the power of God so that we can be free. And then I didn't have room to put the third word, but I actually looked up the third word as well, the word faith. In that, so you, instead, so you're, are you getting this? You have the wrong thinking. You have hooperfaneo. You have this. You have this wrong thinking. You need to have this right thinking. You need to be set free and have this right thinking. Sophroneo, he says, but you need to do it with the measure of faith that God has given you. Now that's an interesting phrase too, because it literally means the word faith that God has given you doesn't just mean believe. Have faith, believe. No, it literally means the faith comes from the assurance of the relationship that you're in with God. And because you're so yeah, which Which Greek lexicon are you quoting from again? I'm curious. Because I'm not finding this in any of my Greek lexicons. Sure of your God and know who he is. You also know what he believes about you. In other words, yeah, I, I've never seen a Greek lexicon discussing the definition of the Greek word pistis, which is used here to say that it's important that we be, that part of that is, is that we believe about ourselves what God believes about us. And it's talking about in the context of God seeing potential in you and me. There isn't a Greek scholar alive who would back this man up in what he's saying. You have this security in this relationship. You have this confidence in this relationship with God. So here, Romans chapter 12, verse 3, the Chris Hodges paraphrase. Here it is. Don't have an unhealthy view of yourself, but rather be set free from the wrong view and let God give you right thinking by being assured of who he is and what he believes about you. That's just horrible. His paraphrase is blasphemous. And that's my goal. Yeah, that's good. I no, it's not. It's absolute. It's blasphemy. You have completely mangled that passage to say something that it does not say by blaming it on the Greek. And I read Greek. I have a degree in religious studies and biblical languages. This is not what this text says in either Greek, English. The Latin Vulgate doesn't even say this. That's really good. I, I mean... Amen, Chris. All right, so like, that's good. Because <laughs> here's the deal. What I've got to do then, if that's the root cause, is that we bought into and we've been listening to the wrong relationship. I need to get you closer to the right relationship, which is God. And then I need you to help you understand how God actually sees you. So here is what I call the root cause of identity issues and self-esteem issues. And that is, you're never going to be right until you can see right. You're never going to be right until you can see right. As long as your assessment of yourself is based on the world's culture, it's based on your past, based on your own assessment and not God's, you're never going to be right. Oh, no. Gasp. Work on your resolutions every year, buddy. You're going to have the same ones every year until you see yourself the way God sees you. So the question of yes. the day... There is no biblical text that says this in context. And you had to completely mangle Romans chapter 12, verse 3 in order to make the Bible look like it teaches this, and it doesn't. It would be then... How? How do I see right? And what does God see? Now, to do that, I want to... Oh, boy.
I'll bring you to a second passage in Judges chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles or your message notes, we're going to study this for a little while. How do you see right? To do that, we're going to go to an Old Testament story. And let me just say about... How do you see right? Now, keep that in mind. This is the question that he's going to try to answer. So, I mean, if the, if I want to make progress on, on life change, and since Romans chapter 12, verse 3 from the Chris Hodges paraphrase says that I need to be, you know, I need to think the right things about myself the way God thinks about me. Well, how do I see right so that I can see the way God thinks about me? What does God think about me? Well, apparently Judges chapter 6 answers this question. Already you should be going, there's no way Judges 6 teaches this. Watch what he does with this. This is narcissism, narcissetical eisegesis. Here we go. By the way of advertisement, that our next series is going to be more of what you're getting ready to experience. Because we're going to do a series we're calling Running with the Giants. It actually starts two weeks from today. Now, next Sunday is our 11th anniversary, and we're going to have the party of all parties and celebrate what God has done in 11 years. It's going to be great. All right. Yeah. Happy birthday. All right. And then, and then in two weeks, we're starting a new series called Running with the Giants. Eight weeks takes us all the way through Palm Sunday. In this series, each week, we're going to bring a Bible character. Most of the time, it's going to be an Old Testament character. And I have two goals. One is I just want to increase all of our biblical literacy. Like, I want you to know the Bible. So I'm going to teach it like I'm going to teach this one right here. And then we're going to find the life left. If you're going to teach an entire series of Old Testament stories the way you're going to teach this, people need to run. Their literacy of the Bible is not going to go up. It's going to go down. That's in the principle that each one of these characters teach us. And it's going to be a great, great study through the word uh, in our next series. So I want to do that now. I want to tell you about a, a guy named Gideon. And it was in a book called Judges, which is, again, it's one of those translations that's really probably not the best. Doesn't really let us know because we think of a judge. We think of someone sitting in a, in a courtroom and they're judging situations. That's not really what these judges did. Judges in the Bible were deliverers. And let me tell you why they needed a deliverer from time to time. Because God never wanted them to have an earthly king. So he said, look, you're going, to be a, you're going to be the only nation without a king. He finally gives in and gives them one. But for years, they had no king. God was their king. But they would disobey, not follow God like we all do. And every time they disobeyed, God would allow enemies to attack them. Now, God allowed it, which God will do from time to time. He will allow things to happen to us to get our attention. Because otherwise, we just keep doing it. So they would attack them. They would get oppressed. It'd be awful. Then they cry out to God. God would raise up a judge or a deliverer. They'd get free from it, serve God again for a while. In fact, they had seven years of peace after Gideon delivers them and his fabulous, all right? So now we're in this story of this guy named Gideon. They had disobeyed God. And they had completely walked away from the Lord. Now the Midianites are just oppressing the dog out of them. And they're miserable and here's what the Bible says. Look at it with me in Judges chapter 11, chapter 6, verse 11. It says, The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah, before she had the TV show, that belonged to... <laughs> that belonged to Joash, the Abizarite, where his son Gideon, look at this, was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, that's not where you thresh wheat. You thresh wheat up on top of the ground where there's lots of wind because the th wheat threshing process is you, you kind of crunch it all up a little bit. The wheat 
And, and then the, the chaff and the, the husk would separate, and then you get a pitchfork, and you throw it up in the air, and the husk floats away, and all the grain falls back down, and you have just pure grain at the bottom. That's wheat threshing 101 right there, okay? But he's scared that these Midianites are going to come and steal his harvest, and he's hungry. So now he's wheat threshing in a pit. A wine press was a pit, large pit that they would crush grapes and, and make wine. And so he's down there hiding, just... Well, it's not working too well because there's no wind down there in the pit. Anyway, so he's really miserable and he's down there trying to make it happen to keep it from the Midianites. And he's so miserable that, 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 that he was in this condition. And I thought, what a picture it is for so many of us. Down there in this, living our life in the pits. Pitiful. Pilful. Look, not, it's just not working. Trying to live life. Did you catch that? <clears throat> he's now allegorizing the text. See, Gideon was in a pit, so you are in the pits. He's allegorizing the text at this point. Another classic Bible-twisting technique. And notice in the pit, your perspective is all wrong. But you look around, and all you see is the walls of the pit. It's pitiful. It's terrible. And there's God who sees something completely different. He's hiding in this wine press. And notice, right off, right off the bat, here's what God says. Verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. To which Gideon would have gone, you talking to me? Man, I'm hiding. I'm no mighty warrior. See, that's how God sees you. you. God sees you as a mighty warrior too. Warrior, I'm a wimp in a wine press. I'm down here hiding. I'm, I'm scared to death. There's no mighty warrior in me. I'm afraid somebody's going to beat me up. I mean, that's what he's singing right here. And notice right off the bat that God saw something in Gideon that Gideon couldn't see in himself. And the reason is, this is... The text doesn't say that. He's sticking that in. The text does not say that God saw something in Gideon. Who is the one who gave the victory? Was it Gideon or was it God? If you re would read the whole story, the, the story tells the story. Judges chapter 6, verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. The hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels would go, uh, could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in, and Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. How did they come to be in this way? They did evil in the sight of the Lord. They disobeyed the commands, right? So God judged them. Verse 7, When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up out of Egypt, 
and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Who delivered them from Egypt? God did. Who delivered them from the house of slavery? It was the Lord, right? And what did they do? They chased after and worshipped and feared the false gods of the Amorites. So God judged them. That's what the prophet said. Now, the angel of the Lord, okay, in the Old Testament, when you hear the term the angel of the Lord, oftentimes this is referred to as a theophany, a pre-incarnate visit by Jesus himself, the Son of God, okay? Now, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abarizerite, while he was while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all of this happened to us? Notice, I want to point something out here. When you look at the text, Gideon isn't going, oh, me, a mighty man of valor? The the phrase he's taking issue with is the one that says, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you, oh, mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why has all of this happened to us? Right? And where are all of his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said to him, Notice, <laughs> notice it says the Lord turned to him. Who's he talking with? Gideon here is talking with Jesus. It says, And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. Do not I send you. Notice, the Lord, Jesus, is speaking to Gideon here, and he's telling him to go and save Israel from the hand of Midian, not because Gideon has something cool inside of him and God sees a lot of potential. The very reason that the Lord gives is because I am sending you. Gideon is going to succeed not because of Gideon. Gideon is going to succeed because he is sent by none other than the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We continue. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you. I will be with you. What's who's giving him the victory? It's it's not Gideon. The victory is his because the Lord is with him. But I will be with you and you shall strike the Midians as one Midianites as one man. And he said to him, "If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that is that you you who speak with me 
please do not depart from me here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes and an ephah flour, the meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand, and he touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang out from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. And then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O my Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Gideon is afraid at this point because he knows he's seen God face to face. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. Yes, he is. He is. The Lord is Peace. To this day, it still stands in Ophrah, which belongs to the Abirezerites. That night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. And when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon the son of Joash has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all those who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day Gideon was called Jerob Baal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Now, there's more to this. I mean, there's more to the story. Gideon's army itself. You know, Gideon summons Israel, and God has him whittle down the army down to like 300 feral men, so that nobody gets the credit for the victory except for the Lord himself, because there's no way they could have been redeemed and been delivered with 300 feral men. You know, read the story. It's fantastic. So when you read it in context, when you read it in its historical setting, this is not a text that tells us what God thinks about us as if somehow God sees all this potential inside of us. No, the text itself makes it clear that the reason for Gideon's victory is because the Lord was with him. God saw a lot of potential in God. You get what I'm saying here? That's what's going on in this text. So Chris Hodges here is, uh, well, mangling, narsageating this text to make it support 
the false doctrine, the false teaching that he's preaching. And ultimately what he's preaching is a false gospel, one that cannot save and leaves people dead in trespasses and sins. It's actually at the root of all self-esteem issues. It's because we have the wrong perspective. Really, the essence of your poor identity is seeing things from the wrong perspective. God's perspective wasn't in the pit. God's perspective was looking up over the whole thing saying, man, you can't see it. You just see the walls. You see the confines. You see the darkness. You see the wimp in the wine press. Man, I see a champion. And he, That's not what the text says. He couldn't get it. That's like being in church. You hear all these, man, God's good. He loves you, man. Go serve God. It's like, amen. But it doesn't ever really work for you. He says, but sir, if I could be honest with you, I don't think that much of you. If the Lord is with us, if you're all that, then why are we even in this trouble in the first place? Why has all this happened to us? Where are your wonders that our fathers told us about? Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? And here you are, Lord. Actually, you're not good. You're an abandoner. You've abandoned us and put us in the hand of Midian. And notice God does not even respond to his complaint. Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? I'm telling you, I've got some good things in store for you. But Gideon still couldn't see it. Completely insecure, he finally gets honest. And can I say, a lot of us never do. Notice he's pop-psychologizing the text now. So we never get healed. We never have any soul therapy. Gideon goes there. He confesses. Okay, you want to know the truth about it then, God? It's really not you. I'm not blaming this on you. Verse 15. How am I going to be able to save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And then out of the weakest, I'm the weakest in the weakest. I'm the weak among the weak. And when I read that, you know what I first thought about? This is going to shock some of you, and this is just honest. It's not a false humility at all. I bet you thought about yourself. That's exactly how I felt my whole life. Yep, Jesus here. He thinks the Bible's about him. He must have gone to the Stephen Furtick School of Hermeneutics. Man, I struggle with this one. That may surprise you. I may look all confident out here and... Like you think, I think I got it going on. Like this is some kind of a confession of sins here. Good night. There isn't a single Sunday that I don't come out onto this stage scared to stinking death, doubting myself. Every... Oh, no, you doubt yourself? Oh, you'll never be able to achieve your New Year's resolutions. Single time I've ever spoken. I hear voices saying, you ain't all that. I mean, even where I'm from, y'all know I love, to, I love to tell a good Cajun story and make y'all laugh, but almost sometimes every time I do, I think, yeah, we're that, we're that state. We're, we're that people. We're 50th on every list there is. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, once in a while, I just want to turn that Cajun joke to a, I want to tell you a story about a Yankee. You know what I'm saying? I just want to turn it around, pick on somebody else. Here's, here's a Bubba joke. Here's a redneck joke for you. Like, 
Because even among the fifth year state, I was, I mean, on my best day, I was a C student. I mean, I was working hard to make C's. I just, I wasn't smart. Come on, where are my C people at? Yeah, baby, I love you. Hate all them A people. All your A people, y'all always messing up our curve. Every time. Can't y'all stay home, be sick one day? Come on, give a brother a break. Come on, C people, give me an amen out there. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. I mean, really. I mean, honestly, that's just... My self-assessment has been that way my whole life. My whole life. In fact, I was going to show you. I'm going to show you something. I really debated whether I should show you or not. I brought a picture with me. Show them this picture, guys, that I brought. That is on that wall right there on the opposite side of that wall where those speakers are. It's the last thing I see before I come out here. Now, everybody that sees that probably thinks I put it there so I don't get the big head. And so, I don't, so, I, so I'm not prideful. Can I tell you? It's the opposite. I have to remind myself every time I come out here that I'm not out here because I was the smartest, because I was not. Because I was the most skilled, was not. I made a D in my speech class at LSU because I was too afraid to get in front of people and talk. And the only reason I'm even able to stand here is I have to convince myself that nothing qualified me except God chose me. That's it. And so take God did not choose you to teach false doctrine. Take it out, It's just the truth. I mean, when I say inferior, I struggle with it so much. And notice what the Lord says here in verse 16. He responds to it here. He says, I will be with you. And you're going to strike down the Midianites, but obviously you're not getting this by yourself. And there's a little detail in this verse. I want you to see it. Because most people, I've never heard a message on it ever. And I've heard probably a hundred Gideon messages. He said, okay, I've told you twice, you are the man. I see some potential in you. But this isn't working too well, so. The text does not say that God sees potential in him at all. I'm going to have to actually send you. Notice it says you're going to strike down the Midianites Together. Together? It's just me and you right here, God. Yeah. I'm obviously going to have to put you around some other people who see your potential, give you a team to make this happen because you're not going to... Narsa Jesus. ...to be able to achieve this identity, the right identity alone. I'm going to have to get you around the right folks. And sure enough, God put him in a, a team of people, gave him some people to win, and it was an amazing victory, and God used him as a mighty deliverer. And the Bible says that Gideon built an altar and worshiped the Lord for the first time. And he says this in verse 24. Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it. Notice this. The Lord is peace. Now, that word does not mean uh, peace. You know what the word is? The word is shalom in the Hebrew. It's the word contentment. For the first time, I can look in the mirror and I'm okay with what I see. For the first time, I don't... The Lord is peace means that I can look in the mirror and be content with what I see? You have got to be kidding me. I'm going to assess myself based on my resume, my grades, the state I'm from, what people have said. I'm not, y'all, I was bullied my whole life. I'm not trying to get your, your pity here. I'm just telling you the truth. My whole life I was picked on. My whole life. That whole group of guys would wait for me halfway to school. I rode my bike to school. They'd wait for me and literally beat me up every day. Every day. 
My parents moved other side of Baton Rouge. We changed towns. First day at school, I was terrorized by a bunch of guys at PE. It's happened my whole life. And if I don't live with the right perspective, man, that voice takes control over me. And I bet it's true of a lot of you too. Maybe not those same scenarios. But if we're not careful, we'll buy into the wrong assessment. I'm going to tell you, and there'll be no peace. And there's nothing like knowing that I don't understand it, God. really don't understand it. I mean, why in the world would you bring a guy from LSU to Birmingham, Alabama, of all places? I mean, think about it. And the dude who can't even really speak that well and doesn't know that much and use me in the way you've used me, only God, only you could have done this. Only you could have done it. And that's why I am now, I'm the most contented person you've ever met whenever I remind myself of that there is peace. I just want you to know, would you look in my eyes? I'm begging this for you. I just, my, my, my. That's right. He, he, he has all this contentment because he thinks so highly of himself. My dream for you is that you would be able to see yourself that same way. So there are three things you should have picked up in this story I want to make sure. Have you noticed that this is the exact opposite of Romans chapter 12, verse 3? Thinking more highly of himself than he ought. Weird, isn't it? Sure you saw them. Write these down with me today. In order for you to have the right perspective, to have the right identity, to not be insecure, not feel inferior, to see yourself the way God sees you, three things have to happen. Number one, you have to see God correctly. Yeah, you have to see God. The God who needs to see you a certain way, you've got to see him the right way first. And if we're honest, a lot of us have an awful view of God. We were raised in religion. Yeah, like this view. This view is like not even really based on what God has revealed about himself in Scripture. Religious environments where God was harsh, mean, mad at you because the people who preached to you and the people you were around were mean, mad, and thought you were always doing something wrong, right? I mean, I grew up in that church where they were like, you're going to hell. You know, it's like, whoa, man, like, what do I have to do? you got to perform. you got to better. Ah, you didn't pray long enough. You better, better cut that hair. I mean, I could never get it right. If your hair's too long, they're sinning your heart. Get it cut today. Get a fresh new start. Now, note, notice, uh, it sounds like he uh, spent a lot of time in a legalistic church where the solution to our sin problem was just stark naked obedience, not Christ's obedience, the perfect obedience of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross for our sins, which is the gospel, but no, you got to try harder. You're going to hell unless you obey. That's a false religion, too. That's, that's the Judaizers. You never heard that song? I grew up with it. You'll live a life of sin and dread with that tangled mess up on your head. I mean, <laughs> that's right. It's like, well, man, what do I have to do? I could never do enough. I didn't like God, and I, I, I pretended because I didn't want to go to hell. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but I'm telling you, religion has lied to us. I agree. The problem is he's giving us another religion. It's, it's a kinder religion than the you're going to hell if you don't obey religion, but it's a false religion nonetheless. That's not the God. You've got a God who looks down at you. He's not mad at you. Hmm. 
He's not mad at you. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Hmm. Sounds like we've got a different God now, a God that doesn't have any wrath. Everything you ever did has been satisfied by the act of Jesus Christ on the cross. He's not mad at you. He now, this is true, yes. However, if you're not a Christian, you still remain under God's wrath. So this isn't exactly correct. He loves you. You have a God who is changeless in his love for you. He loves you with an everlasting love. You don't know what I did with the, this week. Oh, yes, he does, and he still loves you. Mm, yes, he knows what you did last week or yesterday or today, and Christ bled and died for that. Big difference, because God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. The details of the gospel matter. And until you believe that, you can never believe what he says about you. See, your relationship, your relationship with God can be no better than your view of God. Whatever. And that's why my, one of my goals here is to make God and serving God and church what it really is, what the Bible says it is. And that's fun, life-giving, the best part of our week. We've got to get the right view. Then, secondly, we can see ourselves. We've got to see, I've got to see myself the way God sees me. I can't let culture define me. They're lying. It isn't looks and money and power and possessions and, and performance. That's not the truth. Instead, we have to have what Romans 12 says. We've got we to have this relationship with a God who sees you away and be set free from those lies. And I'm going to tell you, the only way to do that is to be in a right relationship with God. I mean, you're going to see yourself correctly if you'll just get close to Jesus and believe what he says about you and believe what your daddy, your papa God. I mean, I know how. Get close to Jesus and believe what he says about you. Well, he says I'm a sinner in need of a savior. Powerful that is because I was raised around people. The, the, really, I'm here because constantly God was so faithful. My third grade Sunday school teacher, God bless her, Miss Frazee. I, I met with our children's team yesterday, all the, all the dream teamers that serve our children. Spent some time with them yesterday. They're my heroes. And, and I was telling them about my third grade Sunday school teacher who, who, who would every Sunday, she, every Sunday, I'm eight years old, every Sunday, there's a champion in you. You're a mighty warrior. There's a champion in you, really? Uh-huh. Did, did not believe it. So God sent a fifth grade public school teacher full of the Holy Spirit. Prophesied to me, you're going to change the world one day. She told me that every day. I'm like, you kidding? You're going to change the world. Look at, he's Gideon now. He's a mighty man of valor. Me? Oh, yeah. I thought she was just being nice. Sophomore year, sends a spirit-filled coach. It's a champion in you. You're going to change the world one day. You talking to me? Every day, every day, my daddy affirmed me every day. I love you like no other. There's a champion in you, and I never believed it. 
Yes, sir. This is Joel Osteen's false gospel, and it's a bad anthropology. God doesn't look into you and go, oh, there's a champion. No, he sees a sinner in need of a savior who bled and died and suffered the wrath of God in his, his or her place. And one day, Jesus sophronailed me, set me free from that demonic thinking. And, and, and I still have to worry about those voices from time to time and, and take, take, you know, apply this message. But I'm going to tell you, I know who I am. And it's what my daddy says I am. You know, every day, every day, I, every day, I tell my kids this. You're a champion. You're a Hodges. Go change the world. Don't live like the rest of the world. You ask my kids. Last thing they hear every time they walk out the door, be a leader. You're a leader, not a follower. Go make a difference in your world today. Man, don't, don't be a thermometer and just reflect the culture. Be a thermostat. Set it today, baby. Get out there and make a difference today. That's what, that's what you're going to do. Yes, yeah, sir. That Scratching, itching ears. This is not sound biblical doctrine. It's a false anthropology. Daddy, yes, sir. And I don't know if they believe it. I told my daughter every day of her life, she's 22, I still tell her, you're the most beautiful girl I've ever seen in my life. Now, when she was little, she ran around telling people, I'm the prettiest girl in the world, you know that. I'm like, baby, scale it on down. That's just between me and you right there, all right? But I'm telling you something. First Peter, I want you to know what your daddy sees in you. Oh, no, I messed up. Nope, you're not like that. First Peter says, for you've been chosen by God himself. You are priests of the king. You're holy and pure. You're God's very own. All of this so that you can show to everyone else that God has called you out of that wine press, out of darkness, and into his marvelous light. That's how your daddy God sees you. You might as well start believing it, everybody. That's how God sees you. Amen, everyone. I'm telling you. So you got to see God correctly. Then you got to see yourself the way your daddy sees you. And here's the third thing. It's the last thing we learn in the Gideon story. And that is you better get around people who see me the way God sees me. That's some of y'all's problem. You get in here and I get y'all worked out every week and you kind of get it together. And you go out there and start live, listening to culture again, listening to the wrong people again. And we got to stay away from those who don't see your potential and don't see you the way God sees you. But instead, you need to be very... Yeah, stay away from those people who don't see your potential. Very intentional about getting around the right people who do see that in you. And my friends, that's why small groups. We're not trying to build some mega empire and some programmatic thing to get all these. No, I'm trying to save your life. I'm trying to get you in an environment where regardless of why you meet and what you do in your group, is in, it's inconsequential. It's, it's no, that's not what it's all about. It's to get you around some people so that you come in, your tail's all tucked between your legs, and they go, what's going on? Oh, man, I'm all right. No, there's a champion in you. You better get out of that wine press. I'm going to walk you through this thing and believe in you. And every day, you're going to be Miss Frazy. You're a champion. There's a champion inside. I told our children's church workers, look into the eyes of those little kids every Sunday. Don't let a Sunday pass. And look in those kids and tell them there's a champion inside of them. Who knows what they're hearing at home? Who knows what they're hearing at school? God knows their classmates have got it all wrong. 2 Timothy chapter 3, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, 
disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture the weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning, never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind, disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was those of those two men. So I want you to know, parents, right now, in those classes, your child is being told, there's a champion inside of you. You're a mighty warrior, and they're going to believe it, and they're going to change the world. Amen, everybody? It's just true. And you need to do the same thing. Wow, everyone's clapping. They're being, their children are not being told that they're sinners in need of a Savior. They're being told that there's a champion inside of them, and they're going to change the world. In the entire history of Christianity, this has never been taught as sound biblical doctrine. This is something new. This is something dangerous. This is something that swells consciences and swells people's hearts and makes them conceited and arrogant, not humble and forgiven. I'm begging you, get in a group. Get in a group. Get in a group. And I gave you the instructions on your handout so you can know how it works out. This is the first day this week. Just get in a group. Get in a group. What's going to happen? Iron's going to sharpen iron, Proverbs says. And when you get close to someone, you're going to get sharper and better. And notice what it'll do. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens the countenance, the identity of the other. That's our hope for you. That's our hope for you. So here's the Conclusion of this series, I want you to write this down, then we're going to pray, and then we're going to receive communion together. It's right relationships that we need. We need right with yourself, with God, and with the right people. Right relationships. What will happen if I do, Chris? It'll define who you are and what you can become. Now, I want you to write that down. I want you to close your eyes right there. Be very still and quiet. If you're online at another campus, I just want you to stay with me here just for a moment. I want to pray for you. I've never had it in my heart more to pray for you than I have right now. A bunch of us, let's start at the beginning, have a wrong view of God. Okay, let's say it this way. Be very still just for a moment. We're, we're not in a right relationship. We're not in a right relationship. If we're honest, we have a wrong relationship with God. Uh, notice the sappy music there. And it's affecting everything. All right, check it out. Those three points, the order is important. You can't even have the next two if you don't do the first one right. Right, yet not a single biblical passage teaches these three things. And in this moment, before we receive communion together, I want to pray for every person who needs to come into a right relationship with God. Chris, how do I do that? You surrender your life to him. Make Jesus your Lord. Mm. Okay. Wow. We don't even give a biblical explanation there either. 
It's that simple. It's very simple. It'll cost you everything, but it's simple. And I'm going to tell you, it'll be the best decision. Why don't you tell us about what it costs Jesus? You've ever made in your life. Now, some of you have never done that. You've been in church your whole life, and you've never truly surrendered to God. Some of you have, but you walked away from the Lord, and you need to come back home and get in a right relationship. Campus pastors, come on the stage where you are. Every head bowed, every eye closed at every location. You need to get into a right relationship. You got it. You got it. You haven't surrendered enough. This isn't the gospel. This isn't repentance and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. This is, well, trusting that you've surrendered enough. It's all on you. It all depends on your surrender. And if today you say, Chris, I need to get a, in a right relationship. I want to lead you through a commitment prayer right there in your seat. I'm not going to have you stand up. Just want to a commitment prayer. I'll pray for you right there. But I need you to, I need you to say, you know what? This is what I need to do, and I want you to do it now. And if that's you, you say, Chris, this is the decision I'm prepared to make today. I want you to lift your hand and say, count me in that prayer. Lift it high right now. Come on, all over this room. That's, the, that's what I need to do. I need, I, need, I need to lift it up and keep it up. Come on, be bold. Be, just yeah. Now, they're not repenting of their sins. They are, at this point, agreeing to believe that there's a champion inside of them. Yeah, thank you, thank you, th good God. Because that's all part of the surrender part, right? Seeing the way, seeing yourself the way God sees you, that's as a champion. God bless you, God bless you all over this room. Yeah, just be bold. It's time for Do you think any of these people were saved that day? Or change our lives. This is the first step. I'm so proud of every one of you all over this room. God bless you, God bless you. All right, thank you. Put your hands down just for a moment. I want you to just forget that anybody's even around, and I want to lead you through a prayer. If you know what to pray, pray it. But a lot of people don't know what to say, so let me help you with the words. Say something like this. Just whisper it right there. Say, God, thank you for the way you see me. Wow. So the, this is the new sinner's prayer. Thank you, God, for the way you see me. Thank you for the way you love me. And today I receive that love, and I receive what Jesus did for me on the cross. What exactly did he do again? You didn't explain any of those details, did you? I surrendered my life to you. I give you everything. Forgive me. Notice that the, the teaching of the cross tells us that Jesus surrendered his life for us. This has flipped everything on its head. For going my own way. Come live inside of me and make me brand new. And with all of my heart, I'm going to serve you with everything. Great, now you're going to lie to God. Great. Say this little phrase. Come on, whisper it to heaven. I give you my life. Lord, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing in this room. Thank you for the different... Yeah, I remember the day when the sinner's prayer actually re included something about sin and repentance and receiving Christ's forgiveness and mercy. This is all about receiving that view of God that he has of you, that you're that champion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, anybody who prayed this, they weren't saved. There's no gospel here. There's nothing sound about this teaching at all. This is narcissistic eisegesis. Run amuck with a prayer of surrender and a promise to, to love God with all your heart. A promise that the people praying that can't keep. A promise that will ultimately condemn them. Rather than bringing them to repentance of their sins and faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, won by him on the cross, they are led 
basically to themselves and their surrender and their willingness at this point to truly try hard to serve God with all their heart. This didn't bring anybody to faith. Not one soul was saved. Probably hundreds, if not thousands, are still lost. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>